Hey, Crosswalk family. It's always an honor to worship together with you. Whether you've been following along in our Faith by Design series or this is the first time that you've ever experienced Crosswalk Church, it's my prayer that you hear God speak to you today. And I also want to take a moment to recognize and celebrate the baptism of Dennis Sparrow. Dennis, we celebrate with you and your family. We celebrate your commitment to Christ and we pray with you for your journey of faith. Now, today we are deep in our series, Faith by Design. It's our study in the book of James. This is week eight, and we're studying from James 4, 1 to 12. Now, I'll be using the New Living Translation as I read through our scripture today. We have a few more weeks in this series and a whole other chapter in James to cover. So if it feels a bit like we're in the seventh inning, just get up, stretch, and maybe sing another worship song if you need. The message here is as pertinent to our faith and our journey as the chapters before have been. In fact, in our CW Kids curriculum that follows this sermon series, we're using the term building blocks of faith to describe these lessons from James. And we can see that these blocks to design our faith life, um, and we can use them in a way that's biblical and meaningful and use our design to continue to help us grow in our relationship with Jesus. Last week, Pastor Tim used the concept of design thinking to help us examine our faith-building practices. So if you missed it, you can access this and our other digital content at crosswalkvillage.com media, or click the media tab at the top of the page. Now, as you might recall, design thinking is this methodology that provides solution-based approaches to solving problems. In other words, it thinks about the end user and the user experience and the end product that we end up with. We can apply this to our own faith-building practice by asking ourselves how we want to experience faith in our life. And then working backwards from that point, we can begin to build a process. So the industry standard of this is from the D School at Stanford, and it includes this five-phase approach to design thinking. Empathize, which is an understanding of human need and the attitude with which we approach them. Like, how do people experience you as you live your faith life? And we can try to understand the problem that we're trying to solve. Then we define that problem. If we know the problem, then, of course, we can work towards a solution. But in order to do this, we ideate, spend time creating, working with many ideas um, in connection with others, in connection with God, surrounded surrounded, um, by a wise community. And next, there's this idea of forming a prototype or this hands-on approach. We don't want to do any of this alone. We do it all in community with others who are both wise and patient with us. Finally, we get to test it out. We put our prototypes into practice. We see what works. We see what doesn't work. Remember that design thinking is nonlinear. So very likely we'll need to move back to another phase and continue progress. And as Pastor Tim put it so well in this process, perfection belongs to God, but progress is a collaboration between God and those who believe. Our faith is dynamic and it's growing, but through it all, we're allowing God to make these changes in our hearts and in our minds. And as we allow these changes, we begin to see new patterns to our thinking new things that God is creating within us, and new opportunities for us to care for others, 
Big changes can come from this. Big changes can come from individual hearts that are changed. And it's these individual and incremental heart changes that we're talking about today and throughout this whole series. We leave behind the more tranquil passages of peace from the end of chapter 3 as James begins a more difficult passage here in chapter 4. So we begin in verse 1, and James writes, he writes this, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? If you come from a faith background and have ever been involved in a church planning committee, or just seen one in action, you might have experienced some of what James is talking about. Because even though we're Christians, and we're in an active and loving faith community, these quarrels and fights can happen with surprising frequency over even the smallest things. Now, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. He's still pastoring. And I recall this running joke at many churches It's the idea that the congregation couldn't even decide on the paint color of the walls. They couldn't decide on the upholstery for the pews. So if we can't agree on something so simple, how can we expect to agree on these bigger theological concepts and deeper discussions that need to be had in order to grow our faith? Now, I guess things haven't changed a lot in church over the years, which probably has a lot to do with the fact that humans don't change a whole lot over the years. And James is addressing these same types of quarrels and infighting within the early Christian community. In scripture and in other first century writings, the authors often wrote in order to call out or correct poor theology or practices. And we can see it right here in James. We can see it in this scripture. In fact, we can actually see it today almost anywhere we look. People are writing about what they don't agree with. We can get a pretty clear sense of what someone doesn't agree with fairly easily. So James is calling out behavior that he doesn't agree with. And as a minister of the gospel called by God, he's also calling out behavior that God doesn't agree with. Behavior that isn't conducive to this life of faith. The whole section that we're reading from today is actually pretty hard to hear in places. And by hard to hear, I mean it might be hard to receive. It's even harder to act upon in order to correct our behavior, but, but we have to define the problem in order to prototype and test out these new ways of living our life of faith. So for this lesson, James uses this nifty anaphora to catch the listener's attention. His audience of early Christian believers with this Jewish culture ingrained and tucked away in their minds would have caught on to this clever repetition of phrases to get his point across. And so he says in verse 2, You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. In fact, even when you do ask You don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Did you catch that? I know, it's tricky. But he's appealing to this chiastic worldly-mindedness of his audience. Essentially, you desire, but you don't have. You kill and, and have envy, but you don't receive. You fight and wage war, but you increasingly don't have. And you ask God, but you increasingly do not receive. No matter how we try to soften his words, James is clear. Wars and quarrels come from these evil desires within us. 
They come from jealousy and impure motives. Isn't this the root of all wars, from Lucifer's jealousy and desire for power all the way down through history? We can see this played out. William Barclay, in his commentary on James, shares the writings of the early Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, who wrote, Consider the continual war which prevails among men, even in times of peace, and which exists not only between nations and countries and cities, but also between private houses. It's present with every individual man. Is it not because of this passion that relations are broken and this natural goodwill changed into desperate enmity, that great and populous countries are desolated by domestic dissensions and land and sea filled with ever new disasters? For the wars famous in tragedy have all flowed from one source, desire either for money or glory or pleasure. Over these things, the human race goes mad. This early writer sounds as if he's watching our current experience play out in real time. No matter what label you personally associate with or side you may claim, no matter what your belief system or worldview, it's easy to see this all around us. Are you at war with your family? At war in your own home? Are you at war within yourself? Or at war with God? Like I said, what James has to say isn't easy to hear. The root cause of this unceasing and bitter conflict, he says, is nothing but our own desire. The New Testament talks about the effect of this desire as a threat to our spiritual life and faith journey. Luke eight fourteen puts it this way, the, the seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and the pleasures of this life. And so... They never grow into maturity. How do we make the choices? How do we make this choice between chasing our own desires and pleasing God? We know that when we chase our own desires, uh, rather than searching for connection with God, there are these inevitable consequences. We're at each other's throats, quarreling with others, quarreling with our families, quarreling even within our own hearts. And since we all have within us the same basic desires for the same things, money, power, prestige, possessions, life becomes this competitive place where we trample over each other, either on our way to some obscure top or or to silence a rival. And these actions, James says, drives us apart instead of closer to God. Also, and perhaps even more damaging to our souls, this life-seeking desire, sorry, self-seeking desire, shuts the door to prayer and conversation with God. So that if we're only asking God for the things that satisfy us, then we're forgetting that the true prayer of thy will be done. When we choose our own desires, we separate ourselves from our fellow mankind and from God. You and I can see these selfish desires lived out, not just in wars, not just in quarrels, but in our own faith journey. So James continues in chapter four, and he starts again in verse four. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever experienced grace? I mean, truly recognized and experienced grace. When I moved here last year, I unpacked all the boxes. And in one of the boxes, I found this piece of paper. It was folded up, so I unfolded it so that I could see what was scrawled across in my own hurried handwriting, this word grace. And at the top was printed this deep theological question about salvation that started with the words, describe on the following two pages. And it took me back to my desk in a classroom on the second floor of the seminary building at Andrews University to a course I had taken from Dr. Joanne Davidson. This course was called The Doctrine of Salvation. I remembered seeing this page during the final exam of the semester. This final exam consisted of seven, maybe eight essay questions. Each one required two to three pages of handwritten essay to answer, covering this deep and wide scope of the doctrine of salvation. And we had two hours to complete the whole exam. So, man, I dove in. I wrote so fast. I I got writer's cramp, but I persisted. I wrote feverishly fast, but not as fast as the clock. And I remember this feeling of dread and panic because I counted the pages and I counted the remaining essay questions and I realized that even if I knew the answers, which I didn't, I wouldn't have nearly enough time to complete writing the exam. That's when Dr. Joanne Davidson called the attention of the students. She said something along the lines of, "Uh, students, it seems I've made the exam a bit long, so why don't you all just go through the exam and tear out two of the essay questions that you don't want to answer. That, to me, was grace. It filled me with such gratitude and struck me with such importance in this doctrine of salvation class that I wrote the word grace on the paper and I kept it, and I still have it years after the fact. God gives grace generously, and he gives grace to the humble. James is saying to his audience, listen, you spiritually unfaithful people, don't you realize that your love for your own desires and your love of worldly things is just getting in the way of your relationship with God? In fact, your love of the world makes you become an enemy of God. It's important to understand what James means here. He uses an idea that we've seen before in scripture, where Yahweh is described as the husband of Israel and Israel is the bride of God. So when he speaks out to the listeners and calls them unfaithful or adulterers, he's bringing to light their unfaithful behavior toward God. Being a friend of the world, chasing after those things that we mentioned before, this power, prestige, and riches of this life, all of those things get in the way of our relationship with God. We can't love God and the world at the same time. We can't love the world and serve God too. Matthew 6.24 says it this way, no one can serve two masters. And the idea 
is that God passionately loves us and he wants nothing to get in the way of that relationship with him. He gives grace to cover where we lack, but we can't receive this grace until we recognize that we need it. James says pride gets in the way both of our recognition of our need for grace and the ability to ask for grace. So he pleads with his hearers here, take a stand against the devil. Recognize your ability to access God. And then James does something beautiful. He provides the listeners with a solution, a sort of primer on how to access God. Now, if we've designed our faith relationship with God, this is the part where we test what we've learned. This is also the hardest part because while accessing God is easy and he is ever-present and ever-ready to answer the changes that we must make in our own faith, these changes are not easy. We continue in verse 7. So, Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Friends, have you experienced the deep sadness, a deep sadness for something that you've done. Since I grew up in a home of a pastor, my brother and I frequently tagged along to the homes of various people with whom my parents would visit or provide counseling, provide Bible studies even. And on one of these visits, my parents brought us along with them to the home of a family, studying the Bible in preparation for baptism. Their home was lovely. It was on the lake, and in my five- or six-year-old mind, it was fancy. It was a gorgeous mansion. Once we arrived, my parents and the couple sent my brother and I to the living room to watch a nature video or something while they studied on the other side of the house. And I don't know what started it. In fact, I remember only a few other details about the day. One moment, my brother and I were laughing and playing, and the next moment... I was furious, and I threw a couch cushion across the room at him. Of course, it missed him, but it did catch this large, leaded glass vase sculpture on the coffee table. That vase fell and shattered into hundreds of pieces over the living room floor. And not only was I shocked, but I was horrified at what I had done. In the mansion of strangers during Bible study... I had destroyed part of their home. So with all the coping skills that a six-year-old can muster, I burst into tears and stuffed my face in the couch and sobbed. I was devastated, embarrassed, ashamed. I was sad even. It was a beautiful vase. We were laughing one moment, and I was sobbing uncontrollably the next. James begs the listener to encounter and embrace a godly kind of sorrow, the kind of sorrow we we experience only by recognizing how the wickedness in our hearts and our selfish actions not only hurt others, but hinder our relationship with God. And again, he uses imagery that his audience would be very familiar with, the washing or cleansing of hands. It's more than just a way to stop the spread of disease, but it's a symbol of the cleansing and the putting away of transgressions. And so when when he says, wash your hands, 
He also means wash your lips, wash the words of your mouth, wash your heart and wash your mind. Withdraw these from the world. Our loyalties are divided between the world and God because we're self-reliant humans. We're accustomed to doing things for ourselves, pulling ourselves up and succeeding on our own. This is a privilege for those who are able to do so. Return to God, says Hosea in chapter 14. Bring your confession and return to the Lord. In Malachi 3, we find this again. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. We don't have to put away our sins before coming to God just to return to God. And, and we can just, just come back to him and allow him to do the work and prepare us to lay our sins down. When we do lay down our sins, James says, let there be tears for what you've done or for what you've said, and let there be sorrow and deep grief within us. The Greek word used here describes a mourning or a lament, a feeling of guilt and uncontrollable grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. James is insistent to his listener that the grief and the needs of others should pierce the armor of their own pleasures and their own comfort. A person is not a Christian until he or she becomes aware of the cry of humanity for which Christ died. The terrible sorrow of the realization of sin moves us to the joy of sins forgiven. In the words of the biblical scholar and commentator William Barclay, it's only when we realize our own ignorance that we learn to ask for God's guidance. Only when we realize our own spiritual poverty that we pray for the riches of God's grace. Only when we recognize our weakness can we draw God's strength. And only when we realize our sin will we realize our need of a Savior and of God's forgiveness. Then James adds, oh, and one more thing. Have you ever been um, on your way out the door, but the person you're talking to is like, but one more thing. (laughs) They have one more thing to add. You know the type. I know the type. I am the type. I always have one more thing to say. And James does too. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? I don't even need to ask if, but when was the last time that you judged someone? My last year of undergrad, I worked as a student missionary. Uh, it was a call in Egypt as a, for a whole year as a teacher at Nile Union Academy. Shortly after I arrived, the principal and his wife and myself and the other student missionary drove into town to pick up a cake for a birthday party. Everything there, of course, looked so strange and so different from what I was used to growing up in Michigan. Even as I was willing to be a student missionary, I had brought with me this rhetoric of American media, the baggage of growing up while the Gulf War raged and and the heavy weight of 9-11. I had arrived in the Middle East with these hidden biases I didn't even know I'd packed with me. While the principal and his wife parked 
and went into the shop for the cake. The other student missionary and I, we stayed in the car and I saw several suspicious men looking at me, looking at us. And I could feel their gaze on me as if they had opened the car door and were inches from my face. So I locked the doors and I averted their gaze and I shrunk down in the seat. This didn't make the men lose interest, didn't make them leave. Instead, um, they actually hovered closer, tried to get my attention. They knocked on the window, but I ignored them. Those few moments were full of heart-pounding anxiety for me. And I sighed with relief when the principal and his wife returned to the car. I saw the strange men approach the principal, and it appeared to me as if there was some sort of altercation. Good, I thought. <laughs> they deserved it. And the principal got back in the car, and he had a huge smile on his face. And he turned to us, us in the back seat, and he said, look, holding up his wallet. I must have dropped this when I got out of the car. And these men, they picked it up and waited for me to come back so they could return it. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Don't speak evil against each other, brothers and sisters. If you judge or even criticize one another, you're actually criticizing and judging God's law. Your job, James says, is to obey the law, not judge if it applies to you. God is the judge. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? James reminds his dear listeners that humility toward God is also humility towards our brothers and sisters, that our lips are to be governed by the law of kindness, as well as truth, as well as justice. Christians are our brothers and our sisters. Humankind that Christ died to save, also our brothers and sisters. The equality of our brothers and sisters is violated when we speak evil of them, and more so when we judge. So let's put away our criticism. Let's put away our judgment. Let our words and our thoughts be governed by the law of kindness, the law of love your neighbor as yourself, or better, love your neighbor as I have loved you. Instead of judgment, put yourself in the shoes of someone else's experience. Imagine you are a middle-aged, Middle Eastern man trying to give a wallet back to an American who just locked herself in the car and wants nothing to do with you. Imagine yourself as the owners of a beautiful mansion on a lake, and a six-year-old child has destroyed a precious family heirloom. Imagine that you are the giver and the receiver of grace. Empathize with those who are other in your story and start your faith design thinking process all over again.